Feels like a gloomy day outside today. It's kind of gloomy in here. A couple lights are out. Sorry about that. Try to brighten up our day with some joy, some rejoicing as we're going to focus on here today. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to mightily bless our time together in His Word, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we come before You, Almighty God. We thank You for Your goodness and Your grace upon our lives. We thank You that You are the all-benevolent God that You love and that You lavish Your children with Your mercy and Your grace. All glory be to Thee, O God. We pray and we ask, Lord, now that you would be the lifter of our head, that you would be the sustainer of our hearts, that you would be the commander, the champion, the chief, that you would be preeminent in our lives, that we would look to you, love you, find our joy, our delight in you, that you would be our chief passion and our ultimate treasure. Give us a capacity, Lord, to rise above our circumstances that oftentimes seek to weigh us down, to smother and to snuff out the life of God in our soul. Overflow in our hearts, O Lord, with Your Spirit. We pray that You would overcome us with joy, that You would overwhelm us with Your love and grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus. Lord, that You would become everything to us, Lord, that You would be what enthralls us, you would be what thrills us, you would be what delights us, and you would be that which we find our greatest joy in. Take us away, O oh dear God, from lesser pleasures. Remove our hearts, our affections, and our minds away from things that would be to us a distraction from the true business of the soul, which is to love you, to know you, to commune with you in the secret place where no one sees. And so, Father, we pray today for an increased intensity and increased zeal and passion for communion with God. We ask that you would enrich our time together, Lord. We ask for a blessing on this time as we look at your word today. We pray that you would use it as a true means of grace, Lord, that that means of grace would come home to us now, that it would minister to us, that it would lift us up, Lord, above our mundane mentality and above our mundane circumstances, that we would not just be mere men, mere women, but that we would be redeemed men and women and that we would live like it for your glory. So we look to you now for your help, for your grace, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I was joking with Brother Brian that the Spirit forbade me from moving on. What I wanted to do was go from verse 16 down to verse 22 and finish up that little paragraph there, but I couldn't. I couldn't get past verse 18, and so that's as much as we'll look at. I told Brother I didn't want to quench the Spirit, so I'll stop right where he told me to stop. Um, it is because what verses 16, 17, and 18 tell us is so foundational, so monumental for not just our lives, but for our church, so important, um, so practical, but 
As I've often said, do, do not allow the practicality of something in the Bible to diminish its potency in your life because it's not meant to do that. Matter of fact, I am convinced now, preaching uh, so many times on Paul's epistles, when he gives us these little shotgun lists, these little bang, 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 little lists of virtues or vices or whichever, that he wrote them in such a way so that the preacher has to slow down and he has to take these into account. And he can't hastily just run over them because they're, you know, two-word, three-word verses. No, 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 no. He wrote them that way so that we would stop and think about those little truths, those little nuggets, and consider them individually. Because they, these really speak to the character, the nature, the content of any church. Every church is different. you got some churches that are very high doctrine, high liturgy. You have some churches that are... You know, their focus is their music, the contemporary scene. You have other churches that engage in more traditional type worship. You have happy churches. You have sad churches. You've got joyful churches. You've got angry churches. You've got loving churches. You've got cold churches. And I think we've all experienced the spectrum of that. But this really makes up the DNA of our church. Whether there is joy, whether there is prayer, whether there is giving of thanks, and whether those things are actually taken serious, whether those things are actually developed, it doesn't matter what denominational affiliation we come from, it matters if the leadership of the church is going to model these things, if the membership of the church is going to practice these things, and if everyone is going to make these things a priority. That is what is going to make for a healthy church. And so... Verses 16 all the way down to verse 22, the Apostle Paul is giving us what we could call different attitudes of the church, both positive and negative. Verses 16 to 18 is the positive. Verse uh, uh, verse, uh, uh, 19 down to the end, we could say, uh, is the negative, and then we'll look at that. But today, we're thinking of positive attitudes, mainly joy, prayer, and gratitude or thankfulness and how we ought to approach these things, because these things are a choice. That's the first thing to understand. The reason why he writes these things in an imperative, because they're things that we need to obey. They are not things that happen in the church automatically, de facto. And it's like, you will not experience these things the way that you ought to if you are not intentionally, actively obeying the command to pursue these things. This is what it's all about. It's all about intent. It's all about the fact that we are intentionally fostering, cultivating, and nurturing these kind of virtues in our church. And the simple question coming back to us today that I will be repeating up here like a broken record is, are these things in us? Do these things mark our lives? Do these things characterize our church? And do these things actually belong to our Christian experience or not? That's what's important. So I want to look at all these three things, not not just individually, but also I think they should be handled individually, but at the same time they should also be considered sort of uh, collectively, uh, uh, um, integratively as it were, how these things go together. And what I want to do is I want to look at each one of these specific effects, but at the same time I want to attribute something to each one of these uh, virtues here, like joy, like prayer, like gratitude. And the very first one is the issue of joy. How are we going to describe this joy? This is the way that I would put it. 
joy or what we could call the power of joy. Sounds like a title of a Christian book at Walmart you would see or something. The power of joy. Sorry to be corny like that, but that's what it is. Joy possesses a certain ability, a certain power. And when it is taken seriously, um, then that joy will have that effect in our life. And remarkable, I didn't even know, but I guess this week we're going to be looking at Piper's chapter on joy in God, or joy is a gift of God. And that's actually my very first point, is that joy is in fact a gift of God. I didn't take it from him, I promise, I didn't steal it from him. But it's because it's true. For example, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. You know, you find in the Bible repeatedly that the Apostle Paul is pleading for joy for the church. Now, is that just Paul being polite? Is this just some sort of, you know, sort of common Christian salutation? Is that just kind of a common sentimentality? No. Matter of fact, it's not. It's actually Paul's earnest desire that the church not lose its joy in God. And he reminds the church that first, joy is a gift from God. It comes from Him. He grants it to us by His mercy and for His glory. Romans 15.13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's a, I'm just kind of associating those terms of, 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 of joy, one thing there, right? Joy and peace going together, combined and mingled together with faith, because he says, in believing, no way in the world you are going to ever experience true, lasting, habitual, continual Christian joy if you do not have faith. Christian joy is not happiness. You know, the word happiness, the origin of that English word comes from the word happen chance, because you're happy if your chances or your circumstances are right. And therefore, uh, 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 earthly, merely uh, non-spiritual happiness is often contingent upon your circumstances. That is the opposite of Christian joy. Joy, Christian joy, is a transcendental joy, transcendent joy. It is a joy that transcends our circumstances, surpasses our circumstances, operates above them, within them, through them, and despite them. That's the way that joy works in the Christian life. Now, Jesus very uh, uh, intentionally focused on the joy of His people and repeatedly called them back to this joy, prayed for their joy. Uh, matter of fact, the farewell sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, farewell sayings begin in chapter 14, they go all the way to chapter 17, and repeatedly Jesus is praying for joy, joy, joy. Now, so is Jesus just being corny? Or is Jesus after a particular distinct joy in our lives? I think you know which one is the right answer. Listen to what he says. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy 
may be in you and that your joy, the joy that has been transferred over to you, may be made full. So either what Jesus is talking about there is that he just wants people to be happy in the church. Or he's speaking about a very distinct spiritual God-centered, God-word, God-originated, spirit-wrought joy that just doesn't happen automatically. That he needs to intercede for us. You think Above that, we'll get to chapter 17. I said intercede is because chapter 17 is where Jesus begins his high priestly prayer for his church, for his people. He's going to use that there. But also, John chapter 16, verse 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Speaking there about the access that we have through Him. But in John 17, verse 13, again He prays for joy. And He says, says, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Well, fullness of joy. Oh, that's interesting that Jesus is praying fullness of joy. Rejoice in Him. Joy in Him. His joy. Because what, what are the Psalms full of? Rejoicing in the Lord in your presence is fullness of joy. And now Jesus is saying that experience that godly joy is now found in him right nehemiah prayed he said the joy of the lord is our strength and now jesus is saying you want strength from joy you're going to find it in me it's very remarkable this is therefore a call to cultivate this essential christian virtue that should characterize all of our lives all the time. Now, don't get me wrong. That does not mean Christian experience is not filled with sorrow, is not filled with, you know, uh, moments where we are anything but joyful, <laughs> right? Where we are downright depressed. Forget about joy. I'm just trying to make it through this day, right? No, you're going to have that, but understand that this joy, when it is joy that is sort of unceasing joy, unending joy. It is an iterative joy. Iterative means it happens over and over and over and over. Not necessarily an unbroken constant. I wish, but that's, you know, that's in heaven. Deep theology, right? That's going to happen in heaven. Unbroken, unceasing, unending, undiminishing, ever-increasing joy. That's heaven. But this side of heaven, we can have a foretaste. We can have a little first fruit of that joy. We can experience some of that joy now. Praise the Lord, right? That we can have some of that joy even today. That's why joy is what should be operative in the Christian's life, distinct from all of our trials and all of our circumstances Let me say this, brothers and sisters, joy is so essential to the Christian life that I would go so far as to say that if a a professing Christian does not have joy, what kind of joy? I'm not talking about joy, again, of circumstances. I'm not having joy because your bank account is because you have this, because you got this, because you own this. That's not joy. I'm talking about God-centered, spirit-wrought, biblical joy. When that joy is not uh, present in your life, what I would say is that the lack, the absence of that joy is the absence of salvation. 
has to be. Has to be. You cannot have salvation if you do not have the joy of your salvation. It's just impossible for a person to claim that they have had all their sins forgiven. They have had propitiation. The wrath of a of, of a holy, righteous, wrathful God that was rightly laid at your feet, at your account, and that that wrath has been mercifully, graciously, lovingly removed and absorbed by Jesus Christ on your account. And if there is no joy, then you know nothing about propitiation. Meaning you've not experienced it. It hasn't radically altered your heart it's not part of your heart it's not who you are but when you have been touched by the hand of sovereign grace it must by necessity lead to sovereign joy yeah that's why james is not a madman james is not a madman when he says james 1 2 passage that you Many of you all know, probably memorize, can repeat. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that word various is a word that means many colors, many-sided, multifaceted, a variegated kind of experience of trials. Can't we all testify to that? Joys that come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You know, it wouldn't be challenging if it was just one kind of trial. But as you know, trials are, oh man, the reason why they just get you <laughs> is because they're so, it seems almost just so perfectly crafted to get you, <laughs> right? It's like that, that, that specific little trial that is the last thing you want to go through, but it's what you're going through. And in the midst of that, knowing that your, 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 your faith is being tested, knowing that you, it's producing endurance, knowing that you know, you're going to be made complete, knowing that you will be lacking nothing, that is why you can rejoice in the midst of your circumstances. This is why Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted. People speak all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. And then what is the command? The imperative. Rejoice and be glad. There it is. That is that otherworldly joy. That is that joy that doesn't make any sense to the world. That is that joy for which the unregenerate, the unbeliever scratches his head. He doesn't understand it. He can't comprehend how someone can go to the flames rejoicing, hallelujah, singing praises to God because he has a joy that is not of this world. Matter of fact, Jesus says, your reward in heaven is great. Some people say, I don't want to live for the pie in the sky. Too bad, then you'll go to hell. Then you'll eat misery for eternity. You see, you, can't, you can never trump God. You can't contend with God. And, it, and, and this joy should be all time, right? should be in everything. That's what he says. He says, what does he say here? He says, rejoice always just seems, if we're honest with ourselves, this imperative oftentimes seems so unrealistic. How do we rejoice? Oh, really? I can really do that? What I would say is you can if your eyes are in the right place. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a joy that should be in all circumstances, he says. In all faith, with all hope, and for all that God promises to be for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, rejoice with a view towards our reward both now and in heaven, just like Jesus said. In order to have your, this joy, our perspective and our vision of our lives need to change. We need to make the conscious decision to see beyond our, our visible categories, our physical categories and turmoil, whatever it may be, and set our eyes on things above. Look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. See, that's the opposite of joy, right? opposite of joy is losing heart. See, you lost heart. You're downcast. But though our outer man is decaying, you know what I was doing last night? I was icing three parts of my body. (laughs) I was like, man, I'm falling apart. (laughs) And I have a pretty high pain tolerance, so for me to whip out the ice, it's like I was in pain. But I was just reminded, the outer man is decaying. Our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary Light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, that's the ice pack, that's the pain on your ankle, your knee, your elbow, whatever it is. And he says, while we don't look at those things, but at the things which are not seen. A Christian has the ability to see the unseen. We have the ability, again, to rise above what's right in front of us, so that, as one author put it, we don't just need sight, we need vision. We need perception. For the things which are seen are temporary, so easily forgotten. So easily forgotten. And yet, everything around us is screaming about the brevity of life, is it not? Everything, not just how old you're getting, but how old he or she got and how quickly he or she died or how young he or she died. Everything around us is telling us it's temporary, it's temporary, it's temporary. And our foolish hearts can't seem to get the lesson. It's temporary. It's almost over. I tell you, when you're in eternity, this life will seem like a dream. It was like, whew, gone. That was it, huh? Now the real life begins. Okay, we can stay all day on joy. But he calls us to something else, which is the habit of prayer. It's not just understanding the power of joy, the power that it has to cause us to rise above our circumstances and deal with our miseries. But it's also the habit of prayer. And so he says... Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Even as joy focuses on the emotional attitude of the church, prayer can be a means of that joy. And I would say it should be a primary means of that joy. This, therefore, is a call to prayer. 
It's not just a sentimentality. Again, it's not just, hey, I'll pray for you, man. I'll pray for you, sister. It is a deep and profound understanding by the lessons that the Apostle Paul has learned over a lifetime of serving and seeking the Lord that prayer is essential. It is the lifeblood of your soul. And if it is not there, if you do not have frequent, regular, habitual moments of prayer in your life, then you will be robbed of these things. And your joy will not be what it's supposed to be. You know, prayer is the most amazing thing in the world. Prayer is simply amazing, is it not? In prayer, we ascend into eternity. I'm thinking of so many scriptures. Bing, 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 bing. In prayer, we transcend into the heavenly places, the Bible says. Don't blaspheme when you enter into prayer by thinking that this is some mundane thing that you're doing. Ho-hum, boring prayer. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you are approaching the throne of God. You are going beyond the veil into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. That's what prayer is. But in a moment, we switch off this eschatological, eternal sort of perspective on prayer, and we think, um, all right, uh, my turn. Okay, so Lord, uh, yeah, um, what? What's wrong with us? Don't we believe what Paul says? Don't we believe what the book of Hebrews says? What all the authors of Scripture, Hebrews says that we are in the throne room of God, that we are the throne of grace. To obtain help in time of need, we need to zealously, because prayer is often in the church, in the, in the life of the believer, in the ministry, in the pastorate, prayer is often the first thing that goes. And time for everything else. Got time to counsel. Got time to study. Got time to preach. Got time to evangelize. You got time to fellowship. You got time to go to the restaurants. You got time for this, for that. And oh yeah, Let's say a quick prayer. Where's the priorities? The Apostle Paul understood the seriousness of prayer. You know, Paul was not too proud to beg. He pleaded with the church many times, help me by praying for me. Is that how you view prayer? Or are you such a Calvinist that prayer, you know, is not as important as the sovereign decrees of God and the post-lapsarian... De- no, 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 no. We understand that the means that God uses for His sovereign ends have also been ordained by God and His sovereignty. And one of those things that He has ordained is our habitual communion with God, the sovereign God. It is the sovereign God, after all, that calls us to pray. It is a sovereign, absolute, I, you know, I believe in God's absolute sovereignty to the point that it might offend some of you. I believe that God is so sovereign, He's in control. There is not a single rebel molecule in the universe outside of God's control. I believe He's that sovereign. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus said, not even a hair from your head, Right? Every hair numbered. Not one sparrow falls to the ground. Nothing! Not even a grain of sand escapes God's notice. Charles Spurgeon once said that God is as sovereign over the sun as He is the 
speck of dust that dances in the sunbeam. God is sovereign. And that sovereign God has chosen to use the fragrant offering that is the prayers of His people to accomplish His sovereign purpose. Calvinists should pray the most. Forgive us, O God. Forgive us, O God. I think of one Calvinist, famous Calvinist in particular, Matthew Henry, who wrote a little book entitled The Method of Prayer. He just walks you step by step, how you ought to pray, when you ought to pray, what you ought to pray. Just like, you know, children's Sunday school level, this is how you do it. And we still can't do it. (laughs) But that man, Matthew Henry, was a man who was deeply acquainted with prayer. And he wrote that book out of his own experience, out of his own need to pray. Not only was Matthew Henry in the 17th century living through one of the most dire times of Puritan persecution during the uh, 1660s all the way to the 1680s, where the persecution was very grave. Matter of fact, Matthew Henry saw his father lose his pulpit to persecution, but he also suffered a great deal personally. A lot of people don't know this, but Matthew Henry, his first wife died giving birth to their child. His second wife, his second wife later went on to have three children. All of them died as infants. And inevitably before that, Matthew Henry wrote this book on prayer, but all of those afflictions that Matthew Henry went through, did not stop him from rising at 4 o'clock in the morning to spend time in habitual prayer with God, to spend at least eight hours of study in Scripture a day. Matthew Henry, who later died because he fell off his horse, he died of an accident. Uh, You know, just a side note, but a helpful thing for your life, my life, just to keep things real, study the way that godly people die. Uh, doesn't often look good, <laughs> right? I mean, Jonathan Edwards, greatest theologian America ever produced, he died from a reaction to a vaccination for smallpox. He didn't have some great, you know, he didn't have some, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it. He didn't have some glorious end. But Matthew Henry understood what we had in prayer. Matter of fact, in another book, Matthew Henry wrote, He talked about what the believer has when he prays. Listen to what he said. He says, a believer has a companion ready in all of our solitude so that they are never less alone than when alone. Isn't that glorious? You're never less alone than when you're alone and in prayer with God. Do you believe this? That you are in the society of the triune God when you are alone and pressing into communion with God, that God is with you. We have a counselor ready in all of our doubts, a comforter ready in all of our sorrows, a supply ready for all our wants, a support ready for all our burdens, a shelter ready in all of our dangers, a city of refuge. That's what we have in prayer. Strength ready for all of our performances. Salvation ensured by a sweet and undeceiving earnest. In other words, what God has deposited into your heart in prayer becomes alive to you once again. What happens in prayer? See, we are robbed 
of all these benefits when we don't pray. Instead, we will not have a constant experience, the sweet serenity of peace that we get in prayer. Instead, we'll get strife. Doubt, not full assurance. Fear, not power or sobriety. Anxiety, not confidence in peace. Any anxious men, women in here? I know you are. You tell me. Any panic attacks? Any weird anxieties that just come over you? Then you back that up, right, with at least an hour of prayer, right? What would happen if you would? If we don't pray like this, brothers and sisters, we will become estranged from God, not intimate with God. Pride will well up, not humility. A restless, covetous greed will predominate our thoughts and our hearts, not contentment like God. When we are not with God in prayer, we will not be like God in life. We need to learn to be like God in prayer. That's where He teaches us what we should be. John Owen, famous for saying, I would rather learn from a theologian what he believes, what he really believes, from the way he prays, not from what he writes. In other words, Prayer has an amazing ability to break down all the facades. What you going to say? You're talking to God now. What you going to do? You're going to fake it to your spiritual demise. No, you become transparent, vulnerable before God in prayer. And the church should do this. And each individual believer should do this regularly. As a matter of fact, What did he say? Without ceasing. You know that word, without ceasing? Paul is the only one that uses that word, without ceasing. Every time he uses it, it's in association with prayer. Romans chapter 1, verse 9, and then, I I have it somewhere here. Supposed to be organized, preacher. And then every other time is in Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 13, and right here, chapter 5, verse 17. Every time, it's in connection with prayer. Unceasing, unceasing, unceasing. Or is the BDAG translated constantly, constantly. Oh yeah, this is, uh, yeah, I'm talking about prayer, but you're really thinking repentance. Because <laughs> right? we need some repentance because we don't pray like we ought to. Let's just face it. This is an amazing how, man, I've been really thinking about, the, about the, uh, the influence of technology in our lives, you know? Technology is meant to do one thing, right? Uh, enhance uh, our lives and make things more convenient, right? Like I was uh, looking at this uh, thermostat at Home Depot the other day. It's just like this computer on the wall now. And I'm like, I don't even know how to work this thing. It's got all these options and look all glorious, but to somebody who's technologically, you know, challenged like myself, if you don't know, ask Robert Reese, I have an irrational fear of technology. But I was like, I can't figure this thing out. I'm going to put this on my wall. Now you're going to know how to use it. You've got to download an app. It's supposed to make my life more, you know, stress-free and convenient and, 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 you know, all of that. Yikes. What's the next thing? 
The next thing is so glorious, it's so convicting, it's so necessary too. He says, in everything, give thanks. And then he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that phrase there, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, is actually, we could argue, grammatically connected to the entire phrase that followed in terms of rejoice, pray, give thanks. For this experience, the totality of all these things, is God's will for us. It's God's will for us to rejoice. It's God's will for us to pray. Just like there should never be a joyless Christian, there should never be a prayerless Christian, and there should never be an ungrateful Christian. In other words, the fact that ingratitude regularly marks our life is a problem. If we are not thankful, once again, we have revealed that what we, the reason we are not thankful is because predominantly we're thinking based on our circumstances and our situation. But when we do this from a gospel-centered perspective, from a Godward perspective, when we understand the soul-satisfying power of the Christian life, then we understand the, the, the mercy and the grace of the gospel. How can we be in Lacking gratitude. How can we lack gratitude at that point? We can't. It's not possible. That's why the Spirit needs to help us to pray. And in communion with God, the very first thing we ought to do is we ought to give thanks. So many places in Scripture that talk to us about this very thing. This level of gratitude will make our trials seem very small. Our hope is going to seem very real. And our God is going to seem very large. If we pray like this, if we hope like this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul, therefore, when he calls us to gratitude, is calling us to live in conformity for God's will for our lives. Now, listen carefully now. It is God's will from the standpoint that it is what God desires for us. Number one, of course, the lema just means desire. It is what God wants. It is what His will is. And it is God's will for us in that it conforms to His law, to His commands. It's what He wants and it's what He commands. And gratitude conforms to those things. And that's why He prescribes it to us. It is God's will that we be grateful in everything. Oh, again, is that... In everything, is that sort of a hyper-spiritual, super-Christian, the sinless perfectionist? Let's go there throw that one in there too. Uh, Is this some sort of like, you know, unrealistic expectation? Is this a standard we will never reach? Is it futile? Or is this possible? And what I would say is, it's not futile, and it is possible, though it may be imperfect, it is possible in that we can actually experience Seasons, moments, days, weeks. We can have times in our lives where we, if we are intentional about it, that we will actually be grateful in everything if we understand, again, the power of gratitude. Just like there's a power of joy, power of prayer, there is power in being grateful. What was the great sin of the people of Israel in the book of Numbers? 
grumbling and complaining. Isn't that remarkable? That was the sin of Israel? Yes. Grumbling and complaining revealed that the children of Israel had no gratitude for God. They weren't thankful to God. It revealed that they did not understand God's providence, God's provision. They did not understand the goodness of God. They did not believe in the faithfulness of God. Isn't that what we're saying when we lack to be grateful? When we are grateful in everything, we are grateful to God. It is inseparable. It's inseparable. We need to be grateful in everything because in doing that, we reveal that we are grateful to God and His providence and the way that He maintains our lives, what He provides. We thank Him for our daily bread. I told you, Years ago, this is in the year 2000. Man, I feel like a dinosaur. When I was in Uganda ministering to the Sudanese down there, I remember praying with a young boy named Kennedy. And I've told you about Kennedy before because Kennedy's like one of those lightning bolts in my mind. I'll never let go of that child. But I remember him praying his prayer. Within a minute in his prayer, I was already sobbing for what he was praying for. Because he began to pray for rain. He began to pray for the crops that grew. He began to pray for the fact that tomorrow we will have a meal. And I just was overwhelmed by his gratitude. And what was he grateful for? He wasn't grateful for all these things that we have, brothers. He was grateful for his daily bread. And do you know that the kingdom of God came with that prayer in a way that evangelical pastors in America could only dream for? There was more unction in that 12-year-old boy's prayer than probably in all my sermons because it was simplest childlike dependence upon the providential sovereign hand of a real God who really gives him the next cup of water he's going to drink, the next bowl of food or rice that he's going to eat. Being gratitude, when it arises out of desperation, then we understand something of true evangelical gratitude. John MacArthur says, when God regenerates an individual, He produces a new heart that longs to obey Paul's injunction in everything, give thanks. The simple direct statement allows believers no excuse to be ungrateful. In everything reveals, uh, refers to all that occurs in life. No matter what struggles, trials, testings, vicissitudes, changes, that occur in the lives of Christians, they are to give thanks. Thankfulness, therefore, should be part of the fabric of the regenerate life, a gracious fruit of the Holy Spirit's work within the believer's heart. Turn with me in your Bibles as we close to the book of Colossians. No wonder Paul's next focus is on the Spirit, right? If this all arises out of the believer's regenerate heart and, the re- and regeneration is a work of the Spirit, then what we're saying is joy, prayer, gratitude. This is all the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's like I'm finding out the more and more I preach, 
on Paul. It was scripture, but following Pauline theology for so long. Nothing is accidental or random for Paul. It's like just when I think this is an isolated thought, <laughs> there's, a, there's a connection. You just haven't spent enough time drilling down and finding it. And I thought I did, but I don't know, I've got to go back again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, because if we do not give thanks, we will quench the Spirit. Thanksgiving arises out of our hearts that are regenerate, our regenerate heart. And it overflows in our hearts when we walk according to God's gracious calling in our life. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in Him. In other words, as you received Him means whatever religion and the power that brought you in, whatever religious truth, whatever gospel truth, whatever saving power brought you in, walk in that. Don't deviate from that. Don't go from grace to the law in the spirit of Galatians. Don't start out in the spirit and finish up in the flesh. Stick with the plumb line that you were given at your conversion, at the moment of the new creation. Don't go back to the old creation. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your heart just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. God, give us this heart. Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, I need this heart. I need to be more grateful. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Stop the, 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 the ingratitude. Stop being ungrateful for the smallest things. I think that us Westerners, we're at a massive disadvantage here because we have so many things, so many allucrements to the things that we buy, so many accessories to the things that we have all of these gadgets and, 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 and all of this stuff. We have a lot to be ungrateful for. You bought the, you know, $2,000 computer and then you bought the wireless, you know, keyboard and then you got the wireless mouse. Oh, but the batteries went out on the wireless. Oh, man, come on. And so now you're not grateful for anything. That's how it works. That's just that quick, right? Just that quick. Ungrateful. God provided us a job. He gave us a job. He provided it to our families. He fed our families to his job. Bam, bam, bam. Then our job's getting kind of complicated. All of a sudden, we find ourselves more in the job complaining and grumbling than being thankful that for all these years, God providentially used that job, no matter how wicked your employer and your co-workers are. God used that job and that paycheck to take care of your family, to pay your bills, to put food in your stomach, to, to clothe you, to pay for your vehicle, to get back and forth to church, the most important thing in the world, but but, you know, all of that, God gave you all of that, and in a moment, you just wipe it all away. You're not grateful anymore. You just complain. This is what I mean by vision. My wife, she's not here, so I can praise her a little. I don't want to puff her up. She's way better at this than me. Whew. Man, she has perspective. Something goes wrong, you know, like right now we're dealing with um, 
I've been complaining a lot lately about the, uh, the ice maker. Oh, man, something's wrong with our ice. I wouldn't serve it to you. It smells. Something's wrong. And you know what my wife said? <laughs> She's so godly. She's like, well, thank God it's worked for all this time. I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> but it's those little, it doesn't have to be some catastrophic thing. It can be the smallest little things that will reveal the grumbling that resides beneath the surface of our hearts. Now, you're still in Colossians, and so you're going to go to chapter 3 now. This is so necessary for us. I want to talk about us collectively because when he says to them that they are to be grateful in everything, he is speaking corporately to the whole church. And it got me thinking, based on something one commentator somewhere said, that every time we come together as a church, it's actually one big thanksgiving. That's why you got to be here for that. Because the church is about to corporately say, thank you, God, for my redemption. And your voice is needed for that. We can't replace your voice. There's no one else that has your voice. We all need to, with our hearts and our voices lifted up and exaltation in our heart, we need to come here for if, if wherever your mind is at when you come to church, I, I hope this will serve to remind you that when you pull up to the parking lot and you put the car in park and you get out the car, you're about to come into the doors. Whatever is going on in your head, pause for a moment and realize that as you go into the door, thank you. Because you have put me in the church. You have called me out of the world. And you have placed me into the house of God. There's this folk uh, song that I really love. It's by a guy named Thad Crockle. And he sings a song about a bitter winter. And he was out. And it says, it seems as if the Lord has turned a bitter cheek. And said, in the song he says, and in the cold, I found an old coat that Satan left behind. I threw it on without a care. And then he realizes as time was advancing and life was going on, he says, I realized that it was not the Lord, but I who turned the bitter cheek. And he says, and I will shed this overcoat of sin if you, Lord, will bring me into your house. I will hang my coat and my hat in the hallway to have access into the big house. And it's such a beautiful picture of that's exactly where we're, what we're doing. What it is, we have, we, when we come in, the, it's like a picture. We've taken off the garments of sin and we're entering in with the garments of righteousness. And that is something of His doing, not yours. You're a guest. You're invited. You're allowed to come in. And that's what I'm saying. Landon gets up here. You know, we don't have synthesizers and choirs and, you know, all that stuff. We don't have a, you know, a, a rock band and everything up here. You know, what we have is just heartfelt worship and in that moment we take advantage of what Landon is doing for us 
get up there, man. Play that song because we need to say thank you today. That's exactly what Paul says. You think I got this from, no, 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 I got this from him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, there's Landon, hymns, spiritual songs, there's Landon. But this is all of us now. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, in everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, give thanks through Him to God the Father. You see how it works? We come to church, and when we come to church, it is such a humiliating act of bowing low before our sovereign King who has given us, our sovereign Father who has given us access into His home so that you, man, you, woman, you, child of God, what are you doing here anyway? Why should you come in? The truth is, is you shouldn't. None of us should. None of us should be welcomed. Right? But God, in His great mercy, has lavished us with access into His throne room of grace. He has lavished us to come into the sheepfold. Father, we pray that we would thank You as our great shepherd. Not only do you bring us in, you take care of us once we're in. You protect us. You guard us. You watch over us. You you entrust us. You give us offices. You give us officers. You give us gifts. You give us opportunities. You give us ministries. And you give us one another so that we can lavish each other with the love of Christ. The same love that we've been shown. And for all these things we say, thank you, O God. Knowing, God, that this is your will. Help us to revisit both corporately, individually, the place of joy. Lord, the place of prayer in our lives. The priority of prayer and the attitude of gratitude in our hearts. When you say, this is God's will for you, what you're saying is, this pleases you. And so, Lord, help us to be pleasing unto you, author and the finisher of our faith, the anchor of our soul, We thank you for Jesus who has given us that grace through his cross. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.